and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder, our expectations have become greater, and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate, and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers and shakers, trailblazers and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimise your success. Hello and welcome to episode two. This week, I catch up with Lucas London, founder of the UK's hottest home decorating brand, Lick. Lucas and I sat down shortly after the brand announced a £15 million funding round, which will be used to grow the business globally. We chatted about a range of different topics, including how to navigate a co-founder partnership, overcoming challenges in a startup, dealing with competition, and why Lick is championing female investors. Lucas talked candidly about anxiety and how counselling has really helped him manage the stress of running such a fast-paced business. I love speaking to Lucas and I hope you enjoy listening to his inspiring story. So to kick off, can you just start by telling me what Lick is and what the brand mission is? So Lick is a online home decor brand. Uh, we sell paint, wallpaper, uh, window coverings, so blinds and the supplies you need to decorate. And we are really entirely focused on supporting the decorator to transform their home. Uh, and that is through the products we sell, through inspiration, through education. And we really label anyone that wants to engage with colour uh, a decorator. And we really start with that point, that point of colour selection and how that can really transform the space you're living in. Awesome. I do want to talk to you later on about timing as a brand that launched just before a global pandemic. But before we get to that, I'd love you to tell me a bit more about what you were doing before Lick and how the idea actually came about. So I started in finance. I spent about five years at a hedge fund and then spent the last six or so years working in online tech businesses. And the last business I was working in was a company called Airtask, which actually is an Australian business that's recently IPO'd. And it's a marketplace for finding services, so uh, finding cleaners and gardeners and handymen in your area. And I was hired as the GM in the UK, so to build the UK business, and then became VP of International to help prepare that business internationalize. And it was there that I met my co-founder, Sam Bradley, 
who is the CMO at Lick, and he was leading growth in the UK. And really, we were just exposed to the decorating industry uh, through our painters and decorators on the platform, and just became very aware that it was a really unique industry because it was a it's a massive industry. So you know, 100 billion a year in North America and Europe in decorative paint and, and set home decor as a category set to hit one trillion. But it was predominantly offline. So 4% of paint was bought online only. And the user experience for both online and offline was an extremely frustrating one. Decorators really struggled with what color to choose, uh, really had little knowledge and, and support in terms of transforming their home and making those key decisions and thought there was a really uh, amazing opportunity to really over-index on supporting the decorator uh, and build Flick. Uh, so we launched the business on the day of lockdown uh, in March last year. So we're just over a year old uh, and started working on the whole business plan about six months prior. So it's, 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 we're only about a year and a half, two years into the journey so far. But this, this was not a, a lockdown business, was it? I mean, obviously last year was unforeseen by everyone. But you saw an opportunity in the market based on what you've just said. This wasn't necessarily a passion about paint. It was a business in a space that you thought that you could overhaul and make an impact on. Yeah, absolutely. So we set, um, the business was incorporated July the year before and we started working on it um, immediately. I think we did our pre-seed round in October um, the previous year. So the previous year's launch. So it was definitely not a lockdown business. Really the, the opportunity was the fact that we thought we could take market share of a very large market through online adoption in, in an industry which was predominantly sort of the incumbents of large chemical, large painting and coating companies that didn't have a direct relationship with the customer um, and weren't purely focused on the user experience and the brand. So we thought uh, we were well-placed, given our experience um, in building tech businesses, to, to sort of solve that problem. And we launched on lockdown. And on, on the day we launched, we actually thought it was a complete disaster because of the lack of visibility we had. We didn't know... Um, how it was going to turn out. But actually, uh, in many ways, as we know, the focus on the home through remote working and the acceleration of online adoption through stores um, being shut played into us into our business plan. So we definitely had strong tailwinds and, and, and it was fantastic to be able to hire during this process and also keep people busy decorating. Um, but it's been, yeah, it's been a really a strong time to, to, uh, to launch a business, but definitely wasn't born out of um, so you've had a very successful career. You've had some really interesting jobs across many different sectors. Why was now the time to do your own thing? Uh, that's very kind to say. Thank you. It's funny. I wouldn't. I wouldn't label it as a as a, a successful career. What I've really done over my career is take lots of learnings, and a lot of the learnings have come from. Um, the things that the failures and the things that didn't work. So when I left hedge, the hedge fund, I started working at, at a tech business and I was there for two years and that actually went into administration. Uh, but that whole experience, those two years gave me a huge amount of learnings, this sort of risks associated with, with high growth companies, hiring too quickly, um, raising venture. And throughout my whole career is really 
is, as I say, taking learning. So the hedge fund was really understanding what a public investable company needs to look like uh, and growing online businesses. The last role at Airtask was wonderful because it was it was my own startup in the UK as I was the first hire outside of Australia, but I got to be part of a larger, later stage tech company. There was sort of 150 people working in Australia and, and they were I think, five years into their journey and doing sort of 140 million in GMV when I arrived. So I had this wonderful experience of, of learning how to build a team and start, start a business in a, market, in a market from scratch. And all that kind of came together in terms of those learnings in, in the last sort of few years when I decided to set up Lick with Sam. And Sam has come with really, really strong growth and marketing experience. So um, worked well. Uh, we work well as a team together. So it just found it felt like the right time, really. Um, we I had a bit of a window between Airtasker and starting a new firm, so I had an opportunity to see if I could go and set this business up and raise the capital. And uh, and we managed to do that, and, and our journey at Lick started. So I want to talk to you about Sam. Um, how important is it to have a very clear delineation of roles and responsibilities with a co-founder? Because lots of people go into business as friends. You obviously worked with Sam before, but from my understanding, you both have very different areas that you're responsible for. How important is that in a co-founder partnership? So so setting the business up with Sam, I mean, that partnership that we have created is is has been fundamental to building this business, really. And uh, there's no way I could have done it without him. We, because we worked together, we understood how the other person worked and where the other person's skills were. So that was hugely important. And we worked together for, I think, for over a year. Um, so understood how each other each other worked and had become very close and, and were friends. You know, we're, we're even at the same sort of part in our life journey as well in terms of him recently married, me about to get married. Uh, and I think all those aspects are really important. Sam is a, is a very wonderful, um, positive uh, guy, and we're, we're, we're extremely supportive with each other and very transparent, very open, uh, which I think is really important. But fundamentally, we have very different skill sets. So I'm very focused on the strategy, building the team, definitely on the funding round and the general direction of the business. Uh, he's much more in the weeds. He's much focused on the growth strategy and the execution of that growth strategy across the content, the the platform, and the general marketing. So our skills complement each other's extremely well, and we just work very well together. And And I, I don't know how I would be able to do it without him because the pressures are immense. The highs are fantastic and should be celebrated with someone. The lows are exceptionally challenging. Uh, even the funding round, I find it's quite a brutal experience where I'm taking, a lot of my time is taken away from running the business and having Sam there is really important. We have an extremely strong management team uh, that is also key to building this business. And, you know, I noticed there are a lot of single founders that have done exceptionally well by building that strong management team. But, um, Fundamentally, I absolutely love working with Sam. So it's, it's, it makes the whole journey a, a wonderful one. Lots of people say that when you start a business, any business, you end up working in recruitment. 
because it's so important who you hire. Is that true on your experience? Do you think that the you've been lucky with the hires that you've made and then the understanding of what you need in the business or have you had any major clients that have set you back? Yeah, I, I mean, building a business is all about people, uh, fundamentally. You know, in the the idea is will only get you a very short uh, distance. And, and in this day and age, we're very lucky that setting up a business is, is can be, in many ways, very accessible. Uh, and uh, But it's the people and it's, it, predominantly it's the execution that, that makes the business a success or not uh, and what level of success it, it is. So at my time at Airtask, where I've got a huge amount of experience building that team there, I worked with um, someone called Mahesh who led people at Canberra and then led uh, led the people team at uh, Airtask and learned a huge amount of, from him in terms of how that recruitment process and how to build a team and brought those learnings over to Lick and, and we've done a great job in building a team. We hired very early Marina Gori to who's who's now CPO at Lick. She was the co-founder and CPO at Super Awesome and built that team. So has seen this before, then was head of talent at Seedcamp. And we really over-index on that hire, bringing someone on with a huge amount of experience because we really understood the value of both hiring people and the top talent, but retaining them and keeping them engaged. And we built an astonishing, we we built a a really, really powerful team that's executing at an amazing level. And that is why the business is performing the way it is. I wanted to ask you about practical steps. So for people listening, the the tens of thousands of people listening to this podcast. Millions of people. Millions of people. Thank you for recognising that. Um, there's a real practical element when you set up a business. A lot of it perhaps feels quite rudimentary to talk about with you now, but things like actually registering a business through company's house, etc. Did you know when you started exactly what you had to do to set it up properly? Or did you have to do a bit of Googling and talk to people? Well, firstly, hi, mum. Yeah, I mean, there was a huge amount to do when we first launched the business. So we we raised our pre-seed in October 2019, launched in March 2020. So we had what was basically a six-week, six-month window uh, to build the business. So we set uh, the funding round started three months prior. So we kind of raised the money in three months and then had six months to build the business. Now we went and raised a pre-seed round of between 500 and 750 was our aim. We ended up raising 850,000. And the aim, the reason for that is we wanted to make sure our version of an MVP uh, had everything it needed to prove out the concept properly. So make sure that the user experience uh, was extremely supportive and, and disruptive in this space. Uh, make sure the brand really stood out, the products were extremely high quality, and that we were building the initial business to scale and scale quickly. So we wanted to make sure we raised sufficient capital to allow us to do that, and we're lucky to manage to close that round to do. And then it was predominantly Sam and I at first building this business, and, and yeah, it was, it was a huge amount to do. But what's so uh, fantastic about the world we live in is, is is how accessible a lot of those things are now. You know, you can jump on Alibaba and get access to um, you know supply chains across the world, uh, and 
which makes product sourcing and developing really easy. Uh, and for us, we managed to find a huge amount of local suppliers that we could partner with and agencies that we could work with on developing the brand, which was with two, two times earlier, and working with the platform, working on the platform with Neverbland. Uh, there was a, a huge amount to execute on uh, ahead of our launch. And the key, really, that we focused on was making sure that everything we were doing could scale. So instead of, in terms of the financial modeling or the recruitment or the setting up the payroll and setting up pensions, making sure that everything was in place to scale quickly post-launch rather than launch and then focus on uh, those points after. I'm not sure if that was the right way, but it was definitely the way we approached it. And presumably that's a key thing about the last year for you guys is that you obviously launched a business not knowing we were going to be plunged into a global pandemic. But the structural work that you've done to set up the business allowed you to take advantage of that, which essentially benefited an industry where people were doing amendments to their home, where they were basically stuck for an entire year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even that, even with all those things we did, we definitely weren't set up to take, um, to scale at launch. So our first manufacturer, our main partner went into administration within, I think, a month of launching, which meant we had to find and move across to another company. And our supply chain has basically hit its sort of limit within about six months of launching, predominantly because we grew so quickly. Uh, I think we grew, well, we grew to sort of half a million per month within eight months of, of going live. So we've had to rebuild our whole supply chain from pretty much scratch and brought in Michael Watson, a COO who was VP of Sherwin Williams and led consumer paints at, at Valspar. So even with all those preparations, we weren't placed to, to, to truly scale, but we definitely were able to focus on the growth and marketing of the business because we had built out some level of infrastructure. I want to talk to you a little bit about money. So you've obviously raised, you mentioned 850 as a seed round. Pre-seed? Seed. Pre-seed. Pre-seed. Um, you've then gone on to raise more money. Did you know when you started the business exactly where and when you'd need and want to raise money and how to create an investment deck and how to go and have these conversations? Um, or did you have to adjust that plan based on how quickly the business was growing? So a bit of both. We, When we went into this journey, we wanted to raise a large pre-seed. And obviously this is all, all relative. There are some businesses out there raising much larger pre-seeds than we did. But we wanted to raise a large, large pre-seeds and make sure we could build the business. But we, we didn't really want to go through that cycle of, of frequent raises. Uh, uh, so when we launched and we saw such growth, or significant growth so quickly, we then decided to do our seed round, which was $3 million led by Felix Capital. And really the reason for that was driven by the growth and the opportunity ahead of us versus, you know, raising to test product market fit or, or, or develop the platform. And uh, as we built the business over the last year, the decision was then to raise a large Series A, which was 16.3 million 
led by OMAs and, and uh, we managed to do crowdfunding, which was hugely exciting as well, to get our community invested. And that was, the focus of that's been to internationalize. And again, we've seen demand from other markets and we've seen our community grow in other markets that made us really show that we needed to capitalize on that or we could capitalize on that. So it made sense accelerating the Series A and raising a large Series A to to scale and to grow. But it really wasn't our plan at the beginning. Our plan was was actually quite the opposite. But market dynamics and the speed at which speed at which we've grown has changed that. In terms of how to raise, I started in finance, so that definitely helped. And then every time I joined a startup, I tend to be kind of as the finance guy, I tend to be put in the room when we were raising. So uh, and have always had an interest in the funding side and the investment side of this world because of my my background. So definitely had experience in terms of uh, the knowledge needed to build a deck and the type of investors we would need to go and see and the type the pit, how the pitch would need to be. So I definitely had those learnings um, already, and I think that that's been definitely beneficial in terms of how we managed to raise capital and also uh, some of those contacts were were already in in place so on that basis would you say that agility is a really key component for running a startup if you've had to look at the original plan and change it based on the evolving market yeah if anything's if anything the last year has showed us is how quickly things can change and how uh, you can't prepare for this, obviously, but um, the importance of being agile. Uh, you know, in truth, we're constantly reinventing the business, and that's driven by competition. That's driven by what, how our decorators are using the platform and the product, how the market's changing, how the industry's changing. So it's it's massively important to be agile, and, and you know that, and consistent problem solving, and and building teams and recruiting is, is, is kind of fundamental pillars of building this kind of business. How do you deal with the competition? So I think it's, it's also, it's really important to be aware of the competition and, and, you know, to see, to see, and I, I wouldn't just say be aware of your competition, but really be aware of how other businesses in other categories are solving problems and building their businesses. So I think it's really important to have your eyes on that, but I don't think you should be focused on the competition. You should be focused on, you know, your objectives and the execution and your market. Uh, you know, we're in a very, very large market. So there's definitely space for a number of businesses to thrive. There will always be competition to my point earlier about the accessibility of building a business or starting a business that the positives of that are the ability to build it. And the negatives is that it means other people can. So, you know, there will always be companies that will imitate and, and or go, just go down their journey and, and end up in a similar space. I think we're doing something fundamentally different from anyone else in the market. We're, we obsess over supporting the decorator across multiple verticals and are very driven by building that community and supporting that community transform their homes. And uh, so I don't think there's anyone in, in that's kind of tackling that problem. Uh, but it's always to be it's always important to be aware of, of the businesses that that do try and um, 
compete but not obsess over it because it can be quite emotionally draining if you do that. You mentioned community. So just to recap on your funding, you've raised 14 million recently and then you did a million on a crowdfunding, um, which closed in six hours. On the Cedars platform for contacts, the average percentage of female investors is 25%. Lick achieved 54% of female investors. There's a complex dialogue around women in the investment world. We know, for example, that less than 2% of investment goes to female founders and achieving financial freedom can be difficult to navigate. As a community-led brand, can you talk a little bit more about your efforts to encourage women to get involved in this space and what Lick's doing to positively impact this issue? Yeah, so there's definitely a a huge um, issue in the industry in terms of uh, lack of women founders. I mean, I, I know some exceptional female founders, but definitely when you look at the percentages, it's small, the amount of investment that's going into uh, female-led businesses, uh, the amount of the amount of uh, the lack of female investors in general, and that includes uh, on the teams of venture and institutional, and it, it includes uh, the the leadership teams of public companies we know have have a very small percentage of female uh, leading those businesses. Now, I definitely don't think we we're going out to try and solve all these problems. What we, in our circumstance, in our situation, we have a community that is, I mean, on social as high as sort of 80% female. Uh, so we have this really strong, powerful community of females that, that understand our business, know our business, and are really strong um, supporters of our business. And we have a team that's between 60 to 70% female, uh, including in our management team, our CPO, Marina is, is, a, is a really strong leader and we're in the process of, of hiring a female board member. So the view of, of the crowdfunders, what we wanted to do is we wanted to offer our community investment in the business. And because as we grew, we, we, the community was driving that growth. So we wanted to make sure that they had, a, they had a part of that growth in its most powerful form, which is investment. So we wanted to open up open up investment to to the community in a really accessible way. So I think the lowest investment, smallest investment size you could make was £15.85, so a really accessible way. And when we went on the Cedars platform, we were starting to prepare the, the campaign, we became aware that actually quite a predominant, uh, quite a high percentage of investors were male on the Cedars platform. So we thought, wouldn't it be uh, such a shame uh, if we were to do a crowdfund to get all our community involved, but actually it was only the males that were going to invest. Uh, so we wanted to build awareness for that. Uh, and and it, it had fantastic results. I think uh, we did the highest percentage of female investors in any Cedars campaign. Uh, over half, I think nearly 60% were female. The average campaign on Cedars is around 23%. So it's great to see that, the work that was really driven by a lot of the females that are working in our team uh, really provided fantastic results. Now, obviously, there's there's a huge amount of issues that still need to be solved, and 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 hopefully, we'll continue to be a part of that conversation and be, you know, pushing for positive change. 
Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really flammable topic for sure. I think it's obvious that it's much more male-dominated. And I think in that sense, if there are many more men making decisions at an executive level, it's really important that that leadership starts to make a change because that's really, if, if they're the decision makers, that's really where the impact's going to come from. So um, it sounds like a very successful last few weeks for you guys. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, I invest in, in uh, I have invested in a number of startups. My advice really to learn is to get involved. And, and as I said, you get involved for as, long, as low as 15 pounds. So really involvement doesn't even necessarily mean investment. It means being aware of the campaigns, reading about them, looking at them. Um, researching them and uh, that was what we were trying to do you know really really bring a build awareness to that problem and 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 really you know shout about what we were doing and highlighting the the issue that was there for sure so like launched last year pre-pandemic in many ways it might have been easier to start a business in a pandemic because you didn't know any different but I'm sure in addition to supply chain there were many challenges in the last year are there any that stick out specifically and if so how did you overcome them i think as i sort of said earlier building a business is i find just problem solving it, it feels it feels like that on a on a daily basis um you get problems that are small or large that you have to that you have to solve and through the pandemic obviously there's been a huge number of them now we've been fortunate because the market dynamics has played in our favor in terms of the demand for our products being high through remote working but it, it's been an extremely challenging time to build our business i mean we we have a team of 38 many haven't met each other nearly i think probably at least 95 percent of them were hired without ever meeting uh, if anyone has met each other, it would have been in sort of single digit numbers. So building engagement, you know, that collaboration aspect of that work has definitely been a challenge completely remotely and building a business from scratch completely remotely has been a really interesting exercise. But the supply chain, without doubt, as a problem dwarfs anything. So because very early doors we were resourcing many of our products from from Asia and that was just because the quantities that we were, we were ordering um, made it very challenging in terms of the small quantities we were ordering made it very challenging to build that supply chain in Europe but for sustainability reasons we've managed to shift that near entirely all to UK and Europe in terms of sourcing and manufacturing but in the early days when we were the early days last year when uh, we were still sourcing from Asia. It was exceptionally challenging. I think the price of a 40-foot container moved from $3,000 to $13,000 uh, pretty much overnight. That's if you could even locate a container or get one into the country. And obviously, when the pandemic started in China, China went into a severe fall-down lockdown where we couldn't, you know, we didn't even know what was happening. We couldn't get access uh, when we first got our cans, our first cans over from China, I remember that I think eighty percent was damaged because of how they had been um, how they had been stored during transit. So we were supposed to fill the cans and launch within a week, and our first order was three thousand cans. I think we had about five hundred to use of them. 
So it, it's it's just ever ongoing problems, and and through the pandemic, those those have been um, those have been far higher. But definitely, there are companies, many companies that have suffered far far worse and found it's a much more challenging market. So we've been extremely lucky with with the market dynamics playing into uh, driving demand for our products. The podcast is called The Busyness Podcast, right? We talk about busyness and being busy as a mark of success and a standard. With all those problems and quite sort of scary things happening that are very much out of your control, productivity can sometimes be difficult if you get the balance wrong. Do you find it difficult to manage that or have you learned during your career good ways to manage that and to switch off and to delineate between work and your sort of social side? Yeah, I think that's a really important question to ask because uh, it's a really challenging one. I think, you know, the biggest thing that we've been dealing with as a company over this uh, time um, since we launched, because for many reasons, we're extremely busy and there's a lot of work to do. Uh, and we're all doing it remotely behind a laptop screen. And if someone's having a bad day or struggling, then it's very, very challenging to identify that. You know, if you were in a workspace, it would be easier to identify if someone was quiet or looking low or looking sad. But in a remote working, you know, someone might not speak in a Zoom call for a few days and you'd have no idea the challenging, personal challenges they were suffering. And obviously there's so many different challenges, whether it's being, you know, the loneliness, the fear and anxiety over COVID as a, as a health scare, uh, something that I've definitely found a struggle, working very hard and not being able to take a break, uh, not being able to leave the house on the weekend, which ends up means you're basically your laptop working. So it's been extremely challenging and, and something that we've tried to do a lot of is, is talking about it and uh, talking about the importance of vocalising when you're suffering, when you're struggling, you know, encouraging people to take breaks, encouraging people to take a walk in the sun as best we can. I've I, I definitely found it immensely struggle, immensely challenging this time in terms of balancing work, you know, the fear that I've had over getting unwell. Uh, and I I went down the route of uh, working with a, a counsellor that's been hugely beneficial in in helping me manage that anxiety and have kind of found it very important to vocalise that as a team to ensure that, you know, if, if the CEO is struggling and the CEO is seeing a counsellor, then, then uh, it's okay to, to do the same and, and to communicate it as well. So it's something we are we are really focused on talking about because it's such a challenge and it's definitely not over and won't be solved just by going into the office. Building a high growth business is exceptionally rewarding, but it's really, really challenging. That's a really thoughtful answer. Thank you. I think it's really important to say that because a lot of the facade with business and the bullshit and the social media sets a very unrealistic standard for young people who have potentially experienced some sort of entrepreneurial flair in the last year. And if the standard is to always be fine, then entrepreneurs are going to constantly feel like they're falling short. So 
it's think also, it's really important, honestly. Yeah, it's also wrong in terms of, you know, you can get, you can achieve a huge amount between nine and five, nine and six, or whatever hours that you you want to work. If if you work in the late into the evenings, or if you work on the weekend, you have to pay some time. So either you have to pay in the weeks following where you need to take time off, or you pay pay with a burnout um, or a shorter career, and you can get a huge amount done between nine to five if you're productive. So resting, sleeping, having the weekends off, having distraction will benefit the speed and the execution and the output of your work without doubt. Now, there are some people out there that I'm sure that are working in corporate finance and working till three and extremely productive. But I know personally it's something that I'm unable to do and rarely find someone that can. And I, and Sam and I talk a lot to each other and encourage each other a lot to take time off, to distract yourself, to encourage the team to do that. Um, but it's very hard to do that. And it's the, it's the simple things that I think are important. You know, not reading the news too much if, if it gives you anxiety, uh, taking time away from your phone and laptop, going for walks, uh, things like mindfulness and yoga are really powerful. Uh, taking time to do things that will distract you, like reading. I I love to get in the water. I love to surf because it it means that I'm off my phone and and uh, it means my mind's clear. Anything that you can do to do that will definitely benefit not just your own mental health, but will benefit the output of your your work um, because it is a marathon. It's it's it's, it's without saying cliche. It's definitely not a sprint. If you had an extra hour in the day, what would you use it for? I'd have a nap, I think. I'd sleep. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. I thought you'd say spend it with my fiancé, but no. I think, like, sleep is a superpower, honestly. I think uh, I think get as much sleep as you can. It's uh, it, it's, it's hugely important. Um, there's there's mm-hmm. more and more uh, being written and talked about in the power of sleep, and I think uh, I think that's how I'd probably spend an extra hour. Uh, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given about building a business? It's all about the people. So hire the, find and hire the best people you can find uh, and incentivize them, give them complete ownership of their decisions and visibility and context on uh, on the work they're doing. And it will it is the most important aspect. I mean, a, a business truly is just a sum of the people that work there and a sum of your customers. And uh, if you hire the best talent and retain them and keep them engaged and we give everyone in our business uh, share options, then it, it's the most important. It's the most important thing about building a business. What have you found to be the biggest myth about running a business? Mine was that you get rich quickly. That was a myth when I was 22. That fucking went out the window. So a great myth is always that you you have full control of your time. And, uh, you know, I think people, some people start a business because they, they uh, it means they can, you know, work when they want, where they want, uh, and have complete, complete control over their diaries and what they work on. And yes, you can build sort of more lifestyle-focused business and maybe have a little of those. But really, the, the the bigger the business gets, the less control of your diary, your time, 
and what you're focused on. Uh, so I think that's probably a, a, a big myth. Do you take time, do you and Sam take time to enjoy the milestones and achievements or is it just a constant and relentless pursuit? We definitely take time. I've been told by, I think, many, lots of advice that I've been given, you know, from people like uh, Richard uh, from Jam Jar, who was one of the co-founders of Innocent Smoothie, and Simon Franks, who was a big part of Love Film. Uh, many have told me frequently, make sure you enjoy the uh, reward, make sure you enjoy you know, the good times and the milestones and make sure those times are celebrated. Because otherwise, if you don't, what just happens is you you only get the negatives. That You know, you really wear the times where it goes badly. And fundamentally, it, it will do both of those things. That if you, you've got to enjoy those milestones, you've got to enjoy the ride and the journey. Uh, otherwise, you're, you're, you're missing tricks. So we made it a really big point to make sure we... We do celebrate that, and that needs to be celebrated with the team as well. Uh, and we've got a, an offsite coming up when a big part of that is is celebrating the success the business has had over the last year, the execution, the funding round as well. Um, I think that's an interesting point. Some people question why you celebrate uh, the funding round, but it's a huge piece of work raising capital. Uh, it's uh, very high pressure. It's very emotionally up and down. You have to, um, you know, you have to deliver a lot in order to raise capital from institutional investors. So it's definitely a, a worthy point to celebrate. And I think, if anything, it's all about finding things to celebrate uh, and finding as many as you can to celebrate and, and, and enjoy it, really. You mentioned earlier you like reading. How do you make sure that you keep learning? Do you listen to podcasts? Do you talk to people? Do you read? Do you take any sort of online courses? How do you keep learning? So really, I'm doing a terrible job of that, if I'm honest. I'm finding it, um, if there's one thing I'd like to improve the most, or the thing I'd like to improve the most, it would be, it would be more of that. It's something that my co-founder, Sam, is very good at. He, he reads a lot. He reads a he listens to a lot of podcasts and uh, and especially in in understanding what other companies and other other e-commerce companies uh, or media companies are doing allows us we get he gets a huge amount of benefit from that and we get a huge amount of benefit from that and I just I have been struggling to find the time to 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 read and to listen to podcasts and but i think that's all about sort of routine and making sure you can fit time into your fit that into your routine uh, so I, I don't do a great job um I, I definitely get a lot of content and try and try and soak as much of that in as i can but actually sitting down taking time to listen to podcasts is something that i'm i'm not doing great at and would love to improve at well i mean that you can listen to this one and that would be a wonderful start. How do you define success? Lick has experienced um, extraordinary growth and success in the last year. It's been in multiple magazines. You guys have been releasing extraordinary statistics, new product lines. The social media is amazing. The partnerships piece, everyone seems to want to work with you guys. Do you think there's a standard now for 
entrepreneurs to become overnight successes and do you think that that's a negative thing through social media so i think the overnight success point is a really damaging point i think through movies like social network or 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 a lot of the publications you might read or or instagram there is this there is this sort of representation of success happening at to people at a really young age and what seems overnight. And I think that's, I think that's really damaging because the average age, I think, of, of, of entrepreneurs and people building businesses is, is, is much higher than, than you'd anticipate. I don't have the statistics to hand, but I think sort of over the age of 45 and yet a lot of the content you're consuming are, are businesses being built by people that are 25 and, and building what seems to be overnight success. I think uh, the thing that uh, that sites like Instagram uh, and general content doesn't show is, 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 is the hard work that's going into it as well. And, and the highs, the lows, the stresses, they tend to just show the highs. And I've, I don't think I've ever heard of, you know, overnight success. It's, uh, you know, even when, when you think about, my journey and lick like lick is not for me the result of a year and a half's work it's the result of of a you know over a 10 year career the the work that i'm doing now on a daily basis is is work or that i've learned and 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 worked hard to get into jobs to have the opportunity to learn those skills and there were definitely a huge amount of lows on my personal journey so I think it just sets expectations at the wrong level. In terms of my personal goals, we it's very important. We find it very important to set clear OKRs on an individual and uh, and function level at the business. So right now we're in the process of post-funding round, taking a step back, not looking at the daily data and revenue but uh, taking time for each stakeholder in the business and each individual to set their own OKRs to really understand where this business needs to look like in, or what this business needs to look like in 12 months. So from a company level, it's important to set those objectives and those key results. From a personal level, uh, I don't, I've, always, I've always challenged, struggled, I've always struggled with that question because I've always felt like from a personal point, I'm kind of running for a finishing line that doesn't exist, if that makes sense. You know, I, I from a business perspective, I always want us to push uh, further and faster. Uh, and I don't think there's going to be a point where we go, okay, great, that, that's exactly what we wanted to achieve. I think, um, but I think that gives me purpose on a personal level. And it took me time to realize that, but actually I like that aspect and, and I wouldn't want to lose that aspect. Uh, at the moment, we're not thinking about an exit. We're not thinking about an IPO uh, or a sale. We're just focused on, on, on our mission, really, uh, which is to help as many decorators as we can globally to transform their home. And, and, and we love the positive results that that, that mission uh, achieves. Uh, and we know if we can focus on that mission uh, and you know work hard and execute well, then then we'll succeed. Tell me what's next, Philip. 
So right now, that's the focus of the business. So our focus is to really understand uh, what is next. Uh, from a fundamentally, we're increasing our the verticals that we're in, offering more products uh, to help decorators transform their homes and focusing the business on global expansion. So building supply chains uh, and building a team in order to execute new markets, expansions and, and growing the UK. Uh, very focused on driving, on continuing to build the community and focus on uh, a depth of content that inspires and, and helps support and educate uh, decorators to transform their home. Uh, so really international expansion, new verticals, uh, becoming the biggest global home decor brand in the world. Great, so some sort of small manageable goals there. <laughs> yeah, just the one. For any modern business, sustainability is a prerequisite of the brand and it's really difficult to apply that retroactively. How important was sustainability in the foundations of building the business? And what are you guys doing to impact that mission? Yeah, I think that's, you're exactly right. I think when we set up the business, we wanted to find a way to not just reduce the negative impact on the environment as, as we built the business, but also really try and have a positive impact on the environment. And we thought if we could, if the, if the positive impact on the environment can be correlated to growth, then wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? And that was really driven by Sam and I and the early team and the team now desire to have uh, a positive impact. And, and it's, it's amazing. It's not, it's not impressive to have that. It's amazing that anyone doesn't have that in this day and age when you see what's happening to our world. But we didn't want it to be a marketing message. And, and that's why when we launched the business, there was very little said about, um, about sustainability. And because we, we, we wanted to be very transparent and have wanted to be transparent that it is very challenging to build a business and uh, reduce its uh, impact. So at the beginning, we, we were doing what I would describe as a very poor job. We were sourcing a lot of our products from, uh, from Asia, and we need to make huge improvements on our supply chain and our products. We tried from day one as a priority to, to make sure it's sustainable, but it was extremely challenging to positively impact a lot of those supply chains when you didn't have the capital or the volume to do that but we've come a huge distance so our paint is uh water-based and very low voc it is uh, all our sundries are made of pulp and bamboo and we chose those products because of the speed at which bamboo grows uh and we replace what were wooden brushes so we remove 15 grams of plastic from the ocean every time a can of paint is sold. We plant a tree for every wallpaper or blind sold. So we've already removed around 15 kilograms of plastic from the ocean, which is the equivalent of around 150,000 plastic bottles. We planted nearly 6,500 trees. And it's, it's fantastic to see that impact, that our next piece of work is, is really focused on uh, the carbon output and how to offset that. We, we, this can all be read on our site. We have a full sustainability report that's on our hub page. 
really, we just wanted to make sure it's not a marketing message. We want to genuinely have a positive impact and are doing everything we can, but it is without doubt a journey. It's not something that can be done overnight. So well, and I think it's an important point that it's almost irresponsible for businesses to be setting up without acknowledging it. It should be a cost built in and it's not going to be perfect on day one. You know, if you're Patagonia, you can probably do a lot more than businesses on day one. And as you say, the ability to impact the supply chain evolves as the business continues to succeed. But it's important to do what you can. And I think businesses that have a disregard for it, I agree with you, should be sort of raised raised an eyebrow. Well, I I just think the consumer is going to become more and more aware of the true impact businesses have on the environment. And, you know, you, you need your business, you need sustainability to be a key pillar in your business. And because it takes a huge amount of resource and focus in order to achieve those goals. Uh, so it's something we're massively passionate about. We're super excited about the, 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 uh, the results that we've already had and, and the pipeline that's ahead of us and, and hopefully we'll continue to do great, do great things. But I think the key for us is not to reduce the impact. The key is to have a positive impact on the environment as we grow, because that, that would be the, the dream scenario. And I think that's probably when we look back in five, 10 years time, I hope that's the thing we're most proud of. Lucas, you are creating what is the most exciting growing brand in the UK at the moment. It is the business I get the most questions and emails about. And I've no doubt that this year and next, we can all expect to see really exciting things. I really appreciate you taking time out. I know you're busy um, and it is much appreciated your honesty and learning. So I think that lots of people listening will find it refreshing and really insightful wherever they are in their journey. So thank you very much. No, thank you. It's really kind to say. Mm-hmm.